This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. So our guest today is Patty McCord, uh, author of Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. Uh, she was for 14 years the Chief Talent Officer of Netflix. Patty, thank you so much for joining us on Knowledge at Wharton today. Thanks for having me. Before we talk about Netflix, I was just wondering if you can talk about what defines a company's culture. Uh, what made And what made the culture at Netflix so different and so unique in some ways uh, from what you see normally in corporate in the corporate world? Well, I'm very Margaret Mead about culture. I'm very much a cultural anthropologist, if you will. And it is, it's the stories people tell. It's the way they operate when people operate when no one's looking. It's the values that you hold dear that you know your colleagues do. It's the expectations of how each other are going to behave and what what gets punished and what gets rewarded. And so I think every company has a somewhat unique culture. It's also, um, particularly nowadays, very much tied to the product or service uh, that your company provides. Um, because, you know, if you think about it, it wasn't that long ago, we knew what our customers thought because we looked at the sales receipts from last week when they were aggregated into a report to management that cascades down, right? And now you look at all the, in retail, for example, you know, you can look at data on what your customers are doing while they're doing it all over the world in real time. And I think that connectivity really changes the way we think about work and customers. So that, I think, affects culture too. There's an immediacy to what we're doing that didn't exist before. And Talking now about Netflix, what do you think made the Netflix culture so so different? You know, honestly, I don't know if it was so different. Here's the most important thing we did. We just wrote it down. So Reed and I did another company together that had a very different culture. It was a software tools company. So the products we made and the people that we served were very different. And it sort of evolved into that generic company culture that we all seemed to have. We had all the same rules and process and we, we did things the way everybody's always done them. And then we called it best practices, which is what happens when we copy each other. And we just decided to write it down and to experiment a little. And so that's the most unique thing about it was that we just decided to pay attention to it. So <clears throat> speaking of writing it down, uh, I mean, what, what uh, I have found most in interesting about your book and your work in general is, of course, the role you played in the, the Netflix culture deck. Uh, could you talk us through a little bit about how that came to be, sure. how it evolved, and, and how, what role it played in shaping uh, Netflix's culture? We did it for a couple of reasons. First of all, Reed and I didn't write it. It was a collaborative document that we did with whoever was in management at the time. It was also a PowerPoint presentation, so it wasn't carved in the lobby. It wasn't, you know, we didn't publish it in hard copy. Uh, if an employee would say, you know, I think we could say this better on slide 17, then we'd change slide 17. I mean, it was PowerPoint. Um, 
But what we did was every chapter is built on the chapter before it. So if you go back and read it, uh, the first part of it was let's write down the behaviors that we value in our teammates. I wanted to write down behaviors and not values. It's really important distinction because values are aspirational. Behaviors are what you actually do. So if we if we value honesty and you keep secrets then something in the system should either punish that behavior or help reward the behavior of teaching you how to say something honestly, for example. So between that and the next chapter, which was around high performance, and high performance, we wrote that chapter after we had a big layoff, actually. We had... um, We had ended up with just very few people in the company, but very, very focused. And we realized that when we had the right people, the right focus, the right deadlines, that people operated pretty independently. And so we delved into what was that? What was high performance? It was about adults. It was about them knowing what they were doing. It's about having people that are passionate about the work that you need to get done. And then The actual infrastructure for making that happen, having high-performance people in every job, probably took me and HR about four years. Mm -hmm. You know, people don't realize that, right? Mm -hmm. So I had to think, well, if the business changes and we don't need your skill set anymore, and it's not that you're not performing, you're just done, Mm -hmm. then I have to get rid of performance improvement plans because that's a dumb thing to do when you're actually performing. Um, So how do I think about severance? Uh, If I'm going to say goodbye to you because I need somebody different, I have to have a really great recruiting team so that people know that we're going to be able to find better people, right? And I have to be able to have managers that are real, really clear about the work that's going to get done, not how you performed last year. So then I had to rethink, well, should we have an annual performance review, right? So that whole looking at the infrastructure of how we operated, I didn't think of it at the time as creating culture, but I realized that it's everything. It's, it's also the processes. You, you know, you say, I have a culture of freedom and responsibility. Oh, by the way, you can't do that without asking finance for permission. <laughs> right. So there's a direct contradiction. So over the years, I just learned to A, question everything and B, scrub the stuff that didn't matter. And then that collaborative part was we would sit down with everybody whenever we'd draft a new chapter and say, what do you guys think of that? Do you think this has really worked? Can we really do this? What are the drawbacks? How do we think about it? So the whole document took 10 years to write and we used it as an onboarding document internally. So Reed and I would meet with every 10 employees in their first couple of months of employment, and we would go over the deck with them and talk about it. I mean, literally, that's what it was until the day he published it. So if you think about what are the elements of a culture of freedom and responsibility, and I'm very glad that you chose both those elements to it, mm-hmm. uh, how would you deconstruct that? What, what goes into creating such a culture? Well, it was a long discussion about coming up with that term because we very much valued freedom Mm. and we very much valued people who had good judgment and made the right calls. And we wanted people to be able to do the right thing with plenty of context and make the right calls because they were smart people with good judgment. But we realized that if we used just the word freedom, it implied to do anything. And we didn't really mean to give people freedom to do anything. 
it was at the time, you know, it's interesting when I look back on it historically, it was at the time when Google was doing their famous 20%, you know, I can do spend 20% of my time doing whatever I want. And I was interviewing people who were interviewing at Google. And I would say to them, you know, Google's mandate is, you know, the world's information is pretty big, right? So they can, and they have more money than God. So they can afford 20% of the time just bubbling up new ideas. That's not what we do. Right. We deliver movies and television shows to people (laughs) on demand. That's all we do. And if you want to spend 20 percent of your time thinking about uh, self-propelling electrical rockets, that's going to probably have to be on your time. Your responsibility is to our customer. So that's how we coupled it with freedom and responsibility. And the other thing about that was it implies reliability and deliverables. Right. So there's a lot in that that two edged sword that produced really rich conversation. I was also very uh, impressed by what you just said about the distinction between behavior and values. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what's very interesting is that there's been so much focus now on this whole field of behavioral economics, mm-hmm. uh, where you can almost nudge people into behaviors that matter and away from behaviors that are less productive. Uh, Can you give me any examples of things that you may have done uh, in that regard to encourage behaviors that you valued and and away from behaviors that didn't? Oh, that's so interesting. I never thought of it that way. Um, And I never thought of it as nudging, but I'm, because I'm usually use a two by four, I'm not much of a nudger. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Subtlety is not my forte. You probably picked that one up. Uh, For us, it was more about spending a lot of time on clarity around what goodness looked like, what deliverables were. You know, now when I consult with startups a lot, one of the things that I find that they don't do very well is put time wrappers on things. And so... You know, what I find is that when you're clear about what needs to get done, you're clear about who you serve by doing it, and you're clear about when it needs to get done, that's usually the nudge, (laughs) right? So that behavior of, yes, we're going to improve the experience of our customer in this realm someday, (laughs) (laughs) means that you might have an organization that does a lot of endless research and development. At Netflix, we did a lot of testing, lots and lots of testing. But there were certain things that we wanted to get done and be improved by a certain date. And that that time frame kind of drives behavior, right? right? So, And that, I think, is an interesting thing for companies to think about, about um, when people don't meet deadlines, why? Right. Was it because you estimated wrong? Was it because it was the wrong people on the team? Was it because we didn't end up doing it because it didn't really matter in the first place? Right. So I think that's also a freedom and responsibility thing, which is to constantly look at how you do what you say you're going to do. And and maybe that's the nudge. Interesting. Uh, I was also very interested in what you said about talking to other companies that that would like to replicate uh, Netflix's culture, uh, and uh, based on the principles you outlined in the deck, uh, is this something? Is a culture something that a company can create through its own volition as an act of choice, or do you think uh, it 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 is sort of um, it has to contend with its historical legacy and the culture it sort of inherits as part of its own history? How 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 
How I, th- I think it's that? definitely both. And I think the longer the legacy and the longer the history and the deeper the habits, the harder it is to change. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. I've been gone six years. Mm-hmm. And in the first couple of years, I spent all of my time with startups, mm-hmm. literally 100% of my time with startup CEOs and, and young companies that were trying to move fast and create new products and new ways of working. And, you know, that was when I was endlessly saying, please, let's not say millennials anymore. <laughs> Let's just talk about people early in their career. And now I'm called upon from very large corporations who realize that they can innovate and they're not agile anymore and they're not nimble. And so they want to learn how to do that now. And it's hard. And one of the hardest things about it is that very large American corporations in particular, but I see this globally. I mean, I I travel a lot. Um, Everything is a global corporate initiative. So there's this uh, this value around um, consistency and sameness that I don't think actually serves us very well. And so when I say to them, hey, giant global corporation with 150,000 employees, mm-hmm. it's going to be hard to innovate across mm-hmm. 150,000 employees in 11 different countries. So pick a team, a small team, leave them alone, let them innovate, and see what the results might be. And so that concept, I told you earlier about it at Netflix, we would A-B test. We'd say, okay, you try this, we'll try this one over here, we'll keep a... We'll keep a, a test cell, you know, that, that mimics what we've always done, and we see which one behaves appropriately, that sort of um, scientific methodology. I wish we could apply the same scientific methodology to the way we manage people. And so that's where it's not that large corporations don't want to change. It's not that large corporations don't um, understand the need to change because they do, right? But if you think about it, let's take uh, finance, banks, right? FinTech is disrupting so many of those large institutions and they know it and they know they don't have the capability to do it, but they want to transform the whole beast, Mm. You know, where the where the fintech companies, for example, are taking little parts of the beast. I'm going to be a better liver. I'm going to be a better hoof. It's a weird metaphor, but you know what I'm saying, right? And so they have a hard time separating those out into smaller organizations or smaller entities that can try different stuff. And the other thing is, as I travel globally, um, the right thing to do in one country with one team is the wrong thing to do in another country and in another team. And so there's also the overlay of culture that is literally the culture in which you operate. I'm very glad you brought that up because that that's just what I was wondering. Uh, to what degree does the culture of a company get influenced by the broader social culture in which it operates. So there are societies that are more traditional and hierarchical in nature. And I was wondering whether the model that you, you evolved at Netflix would be effective in those cultures or it would have to be adapted for use. And I wonder what you think of that. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you what I've experienced. Mm-hmm. I haven't done a very large study on it, but what I've experienced is it's somewhat related to... Uh, who's in the company and what the product is. So I just got back from South Africa and I was consulting with a company that does a lot of work in India and South Africa and Poland and I mean anything but first world countries. And most of the companies that they um, fund are companies that are 
localized versions of an American. They, they worked with Flipkart in India, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, Flipkart, see Amazon of India. Mm-hmm. And and I've spent time at Flipkart. And what I found... Just fa- got to take yeah, Just got Walmart. by Walmart, yeah. So <laughs> when I was at Flipkart, I found the energy and the way people worked and the way they approached problems to be... I, I could have been... I could have been in Silicon Valley easily, right? Easily, easily. I mean, because it was the nature of the beast, right? So let's take India, for example. What I also found was a lot more employees (laughs) because Indian companies typically can hire so many more people. So their issues around culture were somewhat different because instead of having 30 employees, they might have... 300. I mean, I'm I'm exaggerating, but you know what I'm saying. So their issues around structure and communication, but their issues with their products and their customer were very similar, Mm. very similar. So let me give you another example. I was consulting with a large bank in the U.S. and somebody in the HR organization asked me how I felt about remote working. Now, this is in the U.S. last couple of months ago. So I'm talking 2018. And he says, I want to know how you feel about remote working. And I said, that just seems like an odd question to ask me in 2018. Why do you ask? And he said, well, here at the bank, we still require employees to be here in the office between 9 and 5. And I said, do you take away their cell phones when they leave at 5? He goes, what do you mean? I'm like, we all work remotely. <laughs> and I started thinking, why did we used to have to come to work in the office? Oh, our stuff was there. <laughs> you know, it was our files and our typewriters, and then it was our computers, and now our computers are in our pockets. And so I said to him, I'm like, so you can actually skip over the remote working from home thing because you missed that train? <laughs> <laughs> so come back to the reality of we're not tethered to work. We're, we can work whenever we want. You already work remotely. So if given everything you've said about you know working across geographies and, and because of technology working remotely, how do you create teams that can work cohesively but also feel empowered and motivated? Uh, which is something that, as you say in your book, you did very effectively at Netflix. Sometimes. I mean, it wasn't always. Uh, the So when we stumbled at Netflix, when things were hard, were when we predicted and were sure about a particular direction that halfway along the journey turned out to be the wrong direction, which happens in all companies. You just don't hear those stories from the outside like, oh, Wow, that was a bad idea. <laughs> um, and then you have to change gears. So, so that's a reality that occurs in every organization. But I, I think that really the secret is clarity about that end game, right? Real clarity about what it is that you're trying to achieve, why you're trying to. I call it context, Right. This constant setting of context. When I when I go to startup companies, I often say, you know, one of the most important people on your team to communicate to the rest of the organization is your CFO. If you can teach everybody in the company how to read a P&L, a, a profit and loss statement, then you have a capability in your company that serves you and them for the rest of their careers. They understand how how it works and where they sit in the organization. And I think sometimes we think of that as an afterthought. Or, or something that only certain people need to know or are capable of knowing. Mm-hmm. And it's been my experience. Most, most people can wrap their heads around how we make money. So since you mentioned startups a few times, does it seem that, uh, or would it be correct to believe that the kind of culture that, that, that you've written about 
is easier to implement in a startup environment. But as a company grows in scale and complexity and size, mm-hmm. that it would be very hard to preserve. Uh, so at, at, at what point do you need rules, regulations, and policies uh, to, to manage that process instead of just dispensing with them as, as, as you advocate in, in so the let's book? Un- let's unpack that okay. uh, for a minute. If you're in a regulated environment like banking or loans or medical or safety, then there are rules and regulations that are really critical to, you know, airlines, right? Whatever there are, there's a lot more rules and constrictions that are important because of the nature of your product. So that's sort of one variable. Um, the reason why it's easier in startups is it's because you feel more open to experimentation and you don't have the rules yet. So you not only don't have the rules, but you don't have the institutionalized behaviors that are associated with the rules. I know that's a good idea, but you can't do that because you have to ask for permission first. Because in the beginning, when you don't, you just don't, right? And the problem for large institutions is it's not just that the rules are there. That's a problem. Don't get me wrong. It's that the institutional behavior is attached to it. And so you teach people over time with permissions, for example, and approvals. If you've got a five-person approval layer, you tell them, no, I know you have a good idea, and I know it's really critical that it needs to get done, and I know we've been trying to get it done for a really long time. But you can't humanly do it now because it's going to take you four weeks to get permission. So so what we don't do is we don't take the behaviors associated with those rules and processes and treat them like any other part of our business. So I I was just consulting with a company the other day. We were talking about um, bonuses. Mm the bonus structure, very complex bonus structure. Each team had, each person had their own goals. Their goals rolled up to team goals, team goals rolled up to department goals, into division goals, into corporate goals, right? They had software that that was attached to that. There's all kinds of work just in setting goals. Then there was a quarterly review of whether or not the individuals, the teams that met their goals, blah, blah, blah. And then we had to figure out the payout and all that kind of stuff. Um, They always paid 100% of their bonus, Mm. every year to every employee that was still employed Mm. and had four years. It was Mm. called a performance bonus Mm. and literally translated when all was said and done, what you got the bonus for was showing up to work. Okay. So I said, look, first of all, you're in a very expensive city. It's, you know, housing. Why do these poor people have to wait until the end of the year to have the income that they could be spending on their rent for the rest of the year? Because you're going to give it to them anyway. Right. And well, that's the way we've always accrued for it. Our finance, you know, our CFO won't let us do it, blah, blah, blah. And so then I had them delve in and calculate how much time, how much, what was the cost of administering this process in management time in executive time in administrative time in software time. Right. And I'm like, just, just so you know, all of that time, it's not just money. That is time. People aren't working for your customer. Right. Right. There is a real, our lack of ROI, <laughs> whatever is not ROI, like non-return on investment of this kind of activity. And so what corporations can't do 
I mean, I'm trying. I really am. I'm like a one-woman force of nature, but I'm not getting very far. I'm a tiny little hurricane, is they can't stop doing it. So what should they be doing in a situation like this? What If you had a magic wand that you could wave uh, in, in dealing with this situation, what would you what would you advocate they do? I'd advocate they throw it away and see if there's any difference. So, so let's take that example, right? So put it in pay, stop doing it for a year, and see if the world as you know it doesn't come to an end. And I bet you it won't, right? And what's going to happen, what's going to happen is you're going to, what you're going to find is a void. You're going to say, wait a minute, we've lost that. The thing that mattered was that heartbeat that said, pay attention to the things that we were going to pay attention to to pay the bonus. Mm -hmm. What's our return on investment? How's our growth going? What are those? But you can still pay attention to those things without making it a process. Mm -hmm. Right? Understand what I'm saying? So the large corporations, it's the undoing that's hard. Mm -hmm. We've always done it that way. There must be a reason. So to do what you are saying would require... uh, practicing what what I found one of the most fascinating things in your book is a practice of radical honesty. Uh, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it worked at Netflix. You know, I learned it from the engineers I work with. Mm. It's a learned behavior. Um, I don't think I, I mean, I'm a pretty straight talking person, but Here's how engineers are wired. Um, their world is good or bad, right or wrong, black or white, zero or one. <laughs> there, and anything in between is, is suspect, mm-hmm. right? So what I learned was that, and this was through trial and error, when I started speaking HR speak to them, well, you know, the system is enabled to provide you the empowerment so that you're engaged in deliverables that will create an environment, you know, of happiness and well-being. <laughs> and they just roll their eyes back in their head that I probably wasn't saying anything that meant anything to them. Right. And in fact, if I deconstruct that and write down that sentence and look at it again, it didn't I didn't actually say anything. Mm -hmm. So what I learned to do was speak their speak. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. When you behave this way um, and you don't listen to other people giving you input, then you don't have the input. Therefore, you may or may not build the best product because you ha- you're assuming that you're the only person in the room that's right all the time. Let's look at the times where you've made this, this decision on your own and whether or not you were. So I learned to apply fact-based, data-driven behaviors data too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was yeah. my aha, right? Like I could, right. once I put it in their language, well, let's look at the seven times you've solved that problem in that way and it hasn't worked. If this, right? If this were an experiment, you would say, gosh, should we run this experiment again? You would say, no, because it, it doesn't work. So can, can focusing on the future help to build a culture of freedom and responsibility? Absolutely. How? Absolutely. Because when you focus on the future, the future is always different than the present and it's always different from the past. I just spoke to a group this morning and I was telling them, you know, this is a group of startup CEOs. Um, I tell them, you know, the the biggest smoke to notice in your company, the biggest potential for fire is nostalgia. You know, wanting it to be the way it used to be, wanting the culture to stay the same, wanting to keep it the way it was. And if you're successful, for sure, that will not happen. 
right? If you are successful, the, if you keep it the way it is, you'll die. Because mm. no, you know, there, I always tell people there's no global corp, successful corporations with 50 people in it having fun in a garage. It's just, it's a, not that it's not a good thing. Mm. It's just not a successful global corporation. So if that's what you want to be when you grow up, you have to assume there's going to be growth and change. And so that's the part where constantly thinking about where you're going to be, who your customer is going to be, what you need to do differently, how you're going to scale, how it's going to be, uh, the world's going to look. You know, and even if we wanted our companies to stay the same, our customers won't. Mm. Right? The world's going to go on without us, whether we like it or not. The example that I just use of working from home, it's like, well... We've all got cell phones that are computational devices, whether you like it or not, right? So um, to have to come back in and fill out a form to get permission to do something not only is seems stupid, but for the rest of us that work in the real world and you can buy a house on your phone. Yeah. So, so which elements, especially looking at the way in which HR departments are structured, which elements of the HR world can you identify as being outdated and things that you should get rid of and and what is worth keeping? Well, I just focused on one of my favorite ones, which is the annual performance review. I don't think it's very effective anymore. And I think if you ask anybody in any company, including HR, you know, who thinks this is fun, the answer would be zero. Nobody said nobody ever. Right. So that that one just needs a big rethink. Um, the other one is bonus programs and really di- diving deep. It'd be great if you guys at Wharton could look into this. Like, do they work? There's an assumption that people work for uh, um, for money. And the truth is there's many studies that say that's intrinsically not what how people get satisfaction at work. And in fact, it's just delayed gratification that usually makes people unhappy. Right. So is there so we have data now and evidence that some of the stuff that we do simply doesn't work. So how do we at least rethink that? Um, I think that the way we recruit is pretty archaic. The idea of filling out a form with a list of uh, skills and experience and filling, you know, checking all the boxes in the form and hiring somebody that checks all the boxes but doesn't want to do it. It's really broken, right? So I, again, I advocate figuring out the problems you need to solve and then hiring people that want to solve those problems and are capable of doing it. And that's a really different thing. That's a really different kind of matchmaking rather than recruiting for skilled and experienced people. So almost everything that we do can use a refresh from my perspective. Um, You know, and I see, because I travel so much, I see the gamut of, um, you know, it's our job to make the rules and force people to enforce them because if not, they'll sue us and misbehave and cheat and steal and lie. And with those types of HR departments, I lead them out into the parking lot or to the bus station or to the subway. And I say, really? Mm. All these people who have cars in this parking lot came to cheat and lie and steal? Wow. You didn't do a very good job recruiting <laughs> all these evil people. So so there's there's that group. And then there's this other weird opposite end of the spectrum, which is I call it happy face HR, which they believe it's their job to keep people gloriously happy mm-hmm. so that they'll never leave because retention is the metric that matters. Mm-hmm. And whenever I encounter those guys, I just did a conference of like 1,500 HR people. And I said, okay, raise your hand if you're in the job that you had when you graduated from college. Fifteen hundred people, mm. not not one mm. person raises their hand. I'm like, mm. oh my god, mm. 
<laughs> All of you worked for companies that couldn't retain you? How un- What a weird coincidence <laughs> that 1,500 people worked for companies that were that bad. <laughs> you weren't engaged? Didn't they empower you? <laughs> what about your happiness and your well-being? You know, it's like, wasn't it? I guess it was because people like you weren't there to make you happy. It's like, come on. So the other part, I think, that's that's a fundamental to what I'm talking about is we've got to dispel the myths about working that we keep saying and we know aren't true. You know, companies aren't going to keep you for the rest of your life and provide you with endless career progression, even academics. Right. I mean, it's the same promises we make. And that doesn't even turn out to be true anymore. Right. We're going to live a long time. We're going to have. So and the other thing is that companies own your happiness and your success. That's not true. You own it. So I do a lot of work with women now, with women's groups. And I say, look, if you're sitting around feeling like you're underappreciated and underpaid and you felt that way for five years and you're waiting for your company to wake up and do something about it, they're not going to. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me that um, loyalty uh, isn't much in evidence uh, uh, in the business world. And it seems to me that there is some value to loyalty to one's team and to people whom you have tried hard to recruit. Yeah, and I don't, uh, it's, so for me, it's like, I don't know if that's the right word, right? I mean, there's, um, there's a lot of... The way I was of, going with this yeah. was, how do you decide it's the right time for, to let someone go? Because they may thrive somewhere else more than in the environment that they brought that you brought them into? I think there's a couple of real um, logical ways to think about that. One of them is looking forward and uh, knowing the team that you need to build in the future uh, and having clarity about that and what that team looks like, what they're going to accomplish, what it's going to take to be able to do it, what's the time frame. So, you know, uh, you're a public company, you need a CFO, you've got somebody in accounting who wants to be a CFO someday and they're really smart and really capable doesn't mean that they won't be a CFO someday, but probably not next year, <laughs> right? So therein lies the, the time frame. And so you have to say, hmm, will, can, can we move with this person's timeline progression and the company need progression? And does that map up? And when it doesn't, I think that's pretty clear, right? I think, and I think that's a radically honest conversation that you can have with, you know, people be sad, but it's really no hard feelings. This is what we need somebody to do. And this is what you know how to do. And so there's not a match. So how do we think about that? Um, the second case is when the person is really driven by um, an opportunity or something that they desperately want to do, and they, they really want to have that opportunity in your company, and you just don't have it, right? So keeping that person is the wrong thing to do, um, even if they're amazing, Right, because you don't want an amazing person who's unhappy because uh, misery loves company. <laughs> right. So I think it's about it's that constant lining up both ourselves as employees and our employers with what does the future look like? What does my place look like in it? Um, and, you know, when you have a team that's clicking and the right people are on it and the problem's really hard and it's a, you know, you know it's going to take a while. It's going to take a couple of years to pull it off. You don't need to talk about loyalty. Cause, and you don't even need to talk about engagement. It's called like wanting to wake up and come to work and solve these problems with these people, right? That, And so that's where 
for me, the word loyalty starts taking on connotations of um, family. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really different, it's a different promise in a family. And I think confusing those things has hurt us as employers and employees. Employees expect too much from their employees to, quote, take care of them. And we spend way too much time keeping people that we should just set free. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you referred some time ago to some stumbles uh, at, at Netflix. And I was wondering, were there some downsides to the culture at Netflix? And if so, how did you manage that? Oh, there's lots of them. Uh, you know, the freedom and responsibility culture isn't for everybody. A lot of people function much better with with guardrails. Right. And I'm not judging those people at all. I mean, some people like a lot of structure and they like working within the structure, particularly early in your career. Right. So it's it, when you don't really know what the consequences are and you don't know where the walls are, you jump off cliffs a lot unintendedly. So that was hard. Um, having very senior people come from other rigid companies into the culture and sort of deprogramming deprogramming them was really hard. Um, a, a perfect example is the senior manager from another company who has an issue with someone on their team and they wanted me to take care of it. Mm-hmm. Right. This, this person's unhappy. That seems like an HR issue. I got an engineering team to run. Why don't you just go take care of this unhappy employee and I'm going to go do the tech stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's not, you know, that I would say it's not my team. It's, it's your team. I can, I can help you give you some ideas about how to deal with this issue, but I'm not, I'm not running engineering. You are, and I'm not your wife, and I'm not your mom. Um, so the, that – and a lot of people would read the culture deck and intellectually love the idea, but they didn't really like doing it. You know, so there's always that. I think it's the same way for any culture. I mean, so so so, you know, really important thing to remember about the Netflix culture deck is we wrote it as an internal onboarding document. We didn't write a manifesto. We didn't write a treatise. We didn't say and still don't. This is the way everybody should run their company. The point was when it's out there now and my point when I'm talking to people now is we tried some stuff. And some of it worked really well and some of it didn't work very well. And some of it scaled and some of it didn't scale. But you won't know if you don't try. So let me ask uh, one last question. You, 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 you now go around the world talking about these ideas to companies of different sizes in different parts of the world. What are some of the questions that you get asked the most in terms of companies that want to create this culture of freedom and responsibility in their own organizations? Where do they start? What are the things that they should do to, to get started on the, down this path? They always have people in their companies that they know don't fit anymore. Always. All of them. Small, big, large, you know... Asian, Dutch, American, French. I mean, uh, there's always somebody who the company's grown out of that people feel bad about saying goodbye to. And everybody wants to know how to do the good goodbye. And, um, and almost in every situation like that where that's occurred, it's because on the company side, they've made promises that they can't keep and really had no intention of keeping in the first place. And now they feel bad. Right. So uh, it's almost always how do I say goodbye to someone who has who has doesn't see it coming, 
we haven't ever set, been direct with them. They're going to feel really bad, and everybody else is going to feel bad when we see we do this bad thing to this other person. So it's almost always around the skills of the good goodbye. Mm-hmm. Conversely, with employees, it's the expectation that they said they were going to take care of me, and now they've reneged on their promise. And so it's fundamental adjustment for all of us in thinking about what our role as employee and employers are. That, And I hear that from literally every, everybody. And they know that, you know, I just told somebody, said... And what uh, advice do you give? I say, gosh, I should have waited another year before I said goodbye to that employee, said no one ever. Don't set people up to fail. Right. That's just that's not the kind thing sometimes is to start over for everybody. Patty, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 